This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free online resource for health professionals' education. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum podcast. I am Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We are very pleased to have with us today Professor Akash Deep. Dr. Deep is the Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit and Staff Governor at King's College Hospital in London. He is also a professor in pediatric critical care at King's College in London, and Dr. Deep is also the Chair of Scientific Affairs for the European Society of Pediatric and Neonatal Intensive Care, ESPNIC. Akash, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Burns. It's an honor to be here today. Akash, as you know, I invited you to speak on this podcast because uh, you and Satoshi Nakagawa and Pierre Tessier wrote in Intensive Care Medicine just last month or so a wonderful review article on entitled Non-Transplant Options in Pediatric Acute Liver Failure, What is New? And the review I found to be a wonderful review, and especially since liver transplant is known to be definitive management, but I was curious uh, that you focused on why talk about spontaneous uh, regeneration. And of course, you're an expert in this area, and I think colleagues around the world know that acute hepatic failure is... um, it's fortunately a low-frequency event for most of us, but it's a high-impact event. And so uh, who better than to give us an overview on best practices? So, Dr. Deep, I, I turn it over to you again. And again, with that question, why talk about spontaneous regeneration when liver transplant is known to be the definitive management? Thank you, Dr. Burns, for your kind introduction. I think the whole concept of spontaneous regeneration of the liver is very fascinating. But it's not a new one. If you go back centuries and you see the story of Prometheus where his liver had regenerated. And that gave us a concept that liver could regenerate and we could go away from transplantation. But today, this is backed by solid data. If you look at the pre-transplantation era, for example, you would see the 72% of children would die without a transplantation because transplantation was not available. But as transplant became embedded as a definitive treatment, the number of transplants increased, And as with any new therapy, any new intervention, the problems associated with liver transplantation started to come to light. Whether it was the problem of organ shortage, the problem of lifelong immunosuppression or mortality post-liver transplantation. At the same time, our understanding of the underlying pathophysiology of acute liver failure in children really improved, which helped us to target the therapies to these pathophysiologic points. And this has drastically improved the outcomes of acute liver failure with just the medical therapy. And this is indicated if you look at the pediatric acute liver failure study database, 73% of children have now survived just with their native livers and approximately 10% of these children who had satisfied the liver transplantation criteria and were listed for transplant were delisted. And if you look at the proof of concept that comes from auxiliary liver transplant. So what we do in auxiliary liver transplant is leave a piece of the recipient's liver behind in his body and give him a donor piece. Over time, you see that the recipient's liver, the necrotic liver, is actually regenerating. And as you withdraw immunosuppression, the donor liver atrophies. And we see that about 70% of these patients had a full functional recovery. And that sometimes poses a question, are we over-transplanting children? And therefore, our intent while writing the intensive care medicine piece was to empower our colleagues, both in the low middle income as well as the high income countries, so that we are able to offer intense, systematic, 
and pathophysiology-based medical treatment, which might avoid the need for liver transplantation. Well, Dr. Deep, that is absolutely fascinating, and you discussed that in your article, and I'm glad that you're bringing that forward here today. I, I confess I was not aware of this, this evolution in best practices. But speaking of best practices, so you're faced with an acutely ill child with acute liver failure, acute hepatic failure. How are you going to manage this child? What, what are current best practices? So faced with a child or an infant who has got acute liver failure, I think the first step would be to start the supporting measures, which are the same in all the patients, i.e. maintain eubulimia, avoid hypertension, maintain euglycemia, but very important message here is not at the cost of hyponatremia. So don't just start 5% or 10% glucose, give some sodium along with it. Start an acetylcysteine where indicated and make an early referral or liaison with your liver transplant center. Now, once we are doing all this, we then need to initiate eight specific investigations to find out the underlying etiology. And this is done by working very closely with our liver and our metabolic colleagues, because in children, the fascinating thing is not only are these etiologies different, they're different in different age groups as well. So sending the etiological tests for infectious and toxic etiologies, you also need to make sure that you're looking for mitochondrial, metabolic, and genetic causes as well. And this is important because about 50% of our children, despite doing a lot of these tests, still have no diagnosis. And we call it indeterminate etiology. And this is important because you need to start etiology-specific treatment. And if you know the etiology, you would be able to prognosticate. You would be able to decide whether you're going to transplant these patients or not transplant these patients. But very importantly, the rate of spontaneous recovery depends upon the etiology. For example, if you have a child with paracetamol toxicity, invariably this child is going to regenerate its liver. These children will be really sick, will be on multiple inotropes, on CRRT, but would regenerate. On the other hand, if you have a child with indeterminate etiology or with hepatitis B, the chance of spontaneous recovery is really, really slim. So knowing etiology is very important. We need to then regularly monitor liver enzymes, lactates, INRs, ammonia, creatinine and urine output. Now, one of the controversies in acute liver failure management has always been the use of blood products. We traditionally think these patients are coagulopathic, they've got high INRs, they're gonna bleed. But if you look at what liver does for our body, it produces both the pro and the anticoagulation factors. So once the liver fails, both these factors are decreased in equimolar amounts, giving to a rebalanced hemostasis, which means that these patients will not bleed spontaneously. I would want to refer the reviewers to this study from Habib et al. in Liver International, where they compared the patients with acute liver failure with controls, and they found that the endogenous thrombin generation potential of these patients was sky high, which means that these patients are highly prothrombotic despite being coagulopathic, despite having high INRs. Therefore, our recommendation is to give blood products only if the patient is actively bleeding or if you're gonna do invasive procedures to this patient. And this is important for two other reasons. One, you're monitoring INR as your marker to list these patients for transplant. And if you're giving FFP, you're artificially gonna reduce your INR. And second is the problem of volume overload. Therefore, the recommendation to use the blood products very wisely. Another important consideration is the increased propensity of these patients to develop infections. So we recommend to use broad-spectrum antibiotics and antifungals in these patients. 
So in summary, Dr. Burns, to answer your question, the initial management would include finding the underlying etiology by extensive age-related workup, starting etiology-specific treatment, maintaining euglycemia, euvolemia, and avoiding hypertension and avoiding hyponatremia, starting broad-spectrum antibiotics and antifungals, and giving blood products only when indicated. And last but not the least, please pick up the phone and speak to your liver transplant center. Dr. Deep, let me ask you this. We all know how critically ill a patient with acute hepatic failure, acute liver failure can get. Why is it that they appear to be so vulnerable and prone to multiple organ dysfunction and increased mortality? Obviously, any organ failure can be life-threatening, but we all care for patients who develop acute renal failure, and uh, they don't have almost this binary response that a patient with acute liver failure has, that they're either not that ill or they're life-threatening ill going into multiple organ dysfunction. Why is that? Thank you, Jeff. I think it's very important what you just asked me, what kills an acute liver failure? It's important to know that so that we can target our therapies towards this precipitating, towards this inciting events. Now, if you look at historic events, it used to be cerebral edema with raised intracranial pressure and sepsis, which used to be the leading cause of mortality in these patients. Now, the first molecule or the first factor, I would say, which is identified as a causal link and a treatment point was ammonia. It's hyperammonemia. The liver has failed. Normally, your ammonia would come to the liver. It would get detoxified to urea, but this is not happening now. You've got hyperammonemia. It gets converted into glutamine. It goes to the brain and causes astrocytic swelling. In addition, you've got hyponatremia, which would potentiate the effect of hyperammonemia on the brain through the same osmotic effects. And if you've got decreased lactate clearance, that again is a bad prognostic sign. So if you ask me a combination of hyperammonemia, hyponatremia, and decreased lactate clearance is a bad combination. But what has completely revolutionized our understanding of the pathophysiology of acute liver failure is the concept of inflammation. So acute liver failure is an innate immune-driven disease where the hepatocyte deaths would release damps and they are then going to cause your neutrophils, your monocytes, your macrophages, all to become pro-inflammatory. They then release the pro-inflammatory cytokines, the TNF-alpha, the IL-6, initially in the liver, but then there's a spillover from the liver into the systemic circulation, which then causes multi-organ failure. And hence, to answer your question, it is the spillover of the cytokines from the necrotic liver into the systemic circulation, which causes this bad multi-organ failure, including the brain involvement. With such overwhelming multiple organ dysfunction, how do you bridge these patients to liver recovery? And in particular, can you talk us through the use of extracorporeal devices? What is state of the art? What's out there? What's working? What should we know about? Thank you, Jeff. Again, something which is very important in the management of acute liver failure because if you use an extracorporeal bridging strategy at the right time, when the liver function is rapidly falling and the patient is slipping into multi-organ failure, you would be able to remove the toxic ammonia, as I mentioned before. You'd be able to control the fluid overload. You'll take care of sepsis, septic AKI. Very importantly, it can work as an immunomodulatory therapy and take care of inflammation. And all this, the whole purpose is to create a favorable environment for the liver to regenerate or serve as a bridge to successful liver transplantation. So we use either the non-biologic systems, which use the physical and chemical mechanisms and remove the potentially harmful molecules like ammonia, or you use the hybrid biological artificial support systems. But in clinical practice, 
we use the non-biologic systems. Now, continuous renal replacement therapy, we know that it's not a strictly liver assist device, but this is the most commonly used extracorporeal modality. But before we use that, there are lots of controversies which crosses an intensivist mind. When should I start? What should my indications be? What dose should I use? And a very important question, should I anticoagulate these circuits because these patients are coagulopathic and the question often arises, should I be using any anticoagulant which might worsen the bleeding? Now, as far as indications are concerned, what we recommend is not to wait for traditional signs of renal failure, i.e. your fluid overload, your creatinine going up. We recommend using your liver signs, your liver symptoms, your ammonia more than 150 micromoles per liter and not getting controlled or an absolute value of more than 200 and hepatic encephalopathy grade three or four. What we recommend is early, early for fluid control, early for hyperaminemia and early for nutrition. The next question about the dose. Now, if you look at Claudio Ronco's paper or the ATN trial or the renal trial, they all recommend 25 to 35 mils per kilo per hour. But here you're dealing with a swollen brain. You're dealing with a molecule which can potentially cause neurotoxicity to you. So therefore we recommend starting on a higher dose at 60 mils per kilo per hour and remove the ammonia because the delta fall in ammonia is supposed to be a good prognostic factor in patients with acute liver failure. Now, if you look at Andy Slack's paper in, in Liver International, he has compared 35 to 90 mils per kilo per hour, and they have seen a very linear correlation between the dose of CRRT and the ammonia clearance. Similarly, my uh, co-author from this paper, Pierre Tessier, he has compared and used 110 mils per kilo per hour of CRRT in his group. And very interestingly, they were able to delist 25% of those children who were really sick, who they had put on the transplant list, but by using this multimodal modality, they were able to delist these children. Then comes the question of anticoagulation. So anticoagulation in patients with acute liver failure has always been a perennial debate because of the controversies in the bleeding myth, as I mentioned before. So these patients, are prothrombotic, they're at more risk of clotting their filters. And therefore, we recommend that we need to keep the circuits going and we need to decrease the downtimes because you're not dealing here with a creatinine or a fluid overload, you're dealing with a toxic molecule here. So various options depending upon your unit or your unit protocol can be low-dose heparin, low-dose citrate, as long as you closely monitor your signs for citrate toxicity and citrate accumulation. And we at Kings, for example, are an exclusively prostacycline using unit. So we use this antiplatelet agent to maintain the patency of our circuits. So besides the continuous renal replacement therapy, something which is being used more often nowadays is total plasma exchange. And that is being used as an immunomodulatory therapy. And if you look at this randomized controlled trial, which had compared high volume plasma exchange versus standard medical therapy, they had shown that patients who had contraindications to be listed or were listed but then had to be delisted when they were exposed to high volume plasma exchange, they really did well and the incidence of transplant-free survival was much better. So based on this study, the European Association of Study in Liver Disease has recommended that high volume plasma exchange be used for patients with acute liver failure. So in addition to the water-soluble ammonia, you've got protein-bound toxins, which contribute to the development of complications. So people have tried using MARS, which is your molecular adsorbent recirculating system, and SPAD, but unfortunately, the data does not fare survival with MARS, and we use only CRRT and total plasma exchange as a liver-assist device. 
So therefore, the question whether extracorporeal therapies in acute liver failure can bridge to spontaneous liver recovery is an interesting one. So the increase in your transplant-free survival is directly related to a decrease in your ammonia and decrease in your cerebral edema, which CRRT can do. And if you combine it with total plasma exchange, that can serve as an immunomodulatory therapy. What we advise is early, hitting them hard and keeping the downtimes low. Akash, amongst the most feared complications has to be the development of hepaticencephalopathy and raised intracranial pressure. How do you manage these patients? What do you do to monitor them? What's your neuromonitoring uh, protocol? And, and most uh, Im importantly, what, is, what are your neuroprotective uh, maneuvers when you see this evolve? Thank you, Jeff. Again, an extremely important question to answer because the clinical diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy can be very difficult in children as compared to adults. Therefore, having a high index of suspicion about cerebral edema in a child with acute liver failure is extremely important. So we need to neuromonitor them closely. So previously, a lot of debate used to happen on whether we should be using ICP bolts to invasively monitor these children but there was a fear of hemorrhagic complications. But over the last few years, there has been a trend to multimodal non-invasively monitor these patients using transcranial Dopplers, where we look at the pulsatility index and mean flow velocities. We look at reverse jugular venous saturations, aiming for saturations between 60 to 80%, which means that we are expecting the extraction to be 20 to 40%. And then we alter our therapies accordingly and we also use near-infrared spectroscopy in these patients as well. So I would refer the readers to the systematic review of non-invasive neuromonitoring in children with acute liver failure, which was published in Pediatric Transplantation, and it very nicely summarizes all the modalities which can be used and how to interpret them. Then the next question comes, how do you neuroprotect them? Are there any specific recommendations for that? Standard neuroprotective measures, I would say, which are extrapolated from the Pediatric Trauma Guidelines, head midline, avoidance of hypercarbia and hyponatremia, maintaining age-dependent cerebral perfusion pressure, and avoidance of triggers that can trigger raised intracranial pressure are followed. We use the hyperosmolar therapy using hypertonic saline, giving three to five mils per kilo and aiming for a serum sodium between 145 to 150 milliequivalents, and that can reduce your ICPs. Manitol is not commonly used in our practice, except in cases of impending herniation, we try and avoid temperatures more than 38 and maintain a temperature of about 36. And in case of refractory raised intracranial pressure, we recommend using deep sedation analgesia in the form of a thiopentone infusion. Now, of course, there are occasions when despite using all these measures, we still are not able to control the intracranial pressure. The vasopressor requirements are going up. It is that time we need to pick up a phone and speak to our surgical colleagues and say, guys, we are not winning. We need you to take this necrotic liver out, i.e. we are requesting them to make the child temporarily anhepatic, waiting for a graft to come. And what we are aiming to do here is to dampen the innate immune activation and reduce the levels of circulating cytokines, which is causing multi-organ failure. At this point, I would like to re-emphasize again that we cannot afford our CRRT circuits to clot because at this point, the CRRT circuits are working both as a liver as well as a kidney replacement device. And we have been able to maintain children up to 72 to 96 hours in an anhepatic phase waiting for the liver graft. Well, Akash, I, you know, on the day that we're recording this, it's um, the ADAPT study has just been published in uh, JAMA. And as you know, that was led by many investigators around the world. 
Dr. Pat Kohanek, the senior author on this. And that study revealed that hypertonic saline appeared to be significantly more effective than mannitol in traumatic brain injury in critically ill children. But does that uh, change or reinforce uh, what you just described as preferring to use hypertonic saline for these children with hepatic encephalopathy? Thanks, Jeff. I'm actually very fortunate to be one of the co-authors on this paper you've just mentioned. And absolutely, yes, hypertonic saline is the way to go. We initially give boluses, and if required, we even start an infusion of 0.1 to 1 mL per kilo per hour of 3% saline and try and maintain the sodiums between 145 to 150 milliequivalents per liter. So absolutely, yes, no mannitol, and yes to hypertonic saline. And forgive me for failing to note your uh, co-authorship amongst, no, 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 no. amongst a lot of uh, international investigators. Quite a, quite a trial. Well, could we turn to a last question? Are there any recent advances that may work as a bridge to recovery in the setting of acute liver failure? Jeff, I think the future is bright. I can say very clearly from our pathophysiology understanding that if you transplant hepatocytes into the liver to the portal vein, that can supplement the function of the failing liver and can bridge the patient until the native liver recovers. Sometimes portal vein is not accessible. And in those situations, we have coated the hepatocytes with an inert material called alginate. And these alginated hepatocytes are then injected intraperitoneally. And then they work as a temporary device to kind of bridge over the failing liver and bridge them to either spontaneous recovery or serve as a temporary bridge to bridge them to a proper liver transplantation. And finally, the use of mesothymal cells, they have a strong principle which can be used in acute liver failure. We have at King's got an MRC grant to carry out the trial of combined hepatocytes and mesothymal cells. Hopefully we'll get this data this year. Well, Professor Akash Deep, this has been an absolutely wonderful overview and update on best practices for acute liver failure. And really fascinating hearing really what's not just on the horizon, but what's being utilized in centers such as yours around the world. Uh, any parting thoughts for us? I think there has been a huge paradigm shift, Jeff, I would say, in the management of these children from requiring transplant to now recovering with spontaneous native liver regenerations with just the medical therapy. Advanced diagnostics to find the exact etiology, and I'm reinforcing that because we need to narrow the proportion of children who have got indeterminate etiology so we need to find the etiology, we need to start the etiology-specific treatment, and we need to make sure we neuromonitor and aggressively neuroprotect these children. We start using high-volume CRRT along with plasma exchange, which will work as immunomodulation, and finally make sure we control sepsis by the use of antibiotics and antifungals. And I can tell you, Dr. Burns, there is no better satisfaction than seeing a glow on a parent's face when you tell them that a child has been delisted because their liver has started to recover. They just don't believe you initially, but I think that's what a good quality innovative intensive care can do. Well, Professor Akash Deep, Director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit and Staff Governor at King's College Hospital in London, and Professor in Pediatric Critical Care at King's College in London. On behalf of colleagues around the world, we appreciate all of the work that you've been doing over the last several decades. Your research portfolio is really illuminating for many of us how to treat these very ill patients, and we appreciate your joining us today on the Open Pediatrics World Shared Practice Forum podcast. Thank you, Dr. Burns, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. Check out the description box to view the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast. 
to hear more podcasts like this one, log on to openpediatrics.org.